I think it is important for every physician to have in his head the red flags for back pain. In my career, I've come to understand if you have something classic, it means it's there less than 20% of the time. (laughs) We would not cover that under the policies I'm involved with. This statement is just wacko. But it's a lawyer. They don't care. When we have someone comes in who's an IV drug abuser, barriers go up. That's a serious moral question. Yeah, absolutely. Doesn't this sound like the beginning of a joke? Four anesthesiologists <laughs> walk into a bar. This is fraud. This is fraud. Ooh, not good. Hi, Rick Bucata, Greg Henry. And Jim Ducharme sitting across the table from us here. Jim is our guest. We are in room 2203 in the Marriott Hotel, New Orleans, Louisiana, doing the June issue, Risk Management Monthly slash Emergency Medicine. And we've taken the opportunity to invite Jim to participate because he's one of our faculty for the Emergency Medical Abstracts course, which we have done for the last 20 or some years. Let me tell you a little bit about Jim. Jim is a Canadian but we will not hold that against him. No, but he speaks a different language. So if, if during the tape he says things like, good goal there, eh? It's all right. It's okay. Actually, I met Jim when he was a resident in emergency medicine at the University of Southern California. We allow exchange students from foreign countries to come into the United States to take the residency in emergency medicine. No, a northern wetback is what he really was. Yeah. And so Jim came in and did his residency there and excelled. Jim were you the only resident who was fired by Gail Anderson? Uh, yes, I can claim that fame. You were fired a number of At times. Least twice. Uh, At least twice. At least twice, yes. Congratulations. That is a very unusual part of your CV, but you never actually were fired. You were just threatened to be fired. Uh, That's right. Or I never, never had act- to leave the premises. There, there you go. Jim has been in academic emergency medicine for many years. He was a director at St. John's in New Brunswick, which was affiliated with, uh, where was that? Dalhousie University. And Jim is currently professor of medicine at McMaster University. And recently, about a year ago, was it, it changed jobs and now is the medical vice president? Yes. For medical services of MedEmerge, which is a large Canadian contract staffing group where Jim is basically making sure everybody's medicine is on top of their game. And he's also the editor of the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine, which is, I think, a very nice journal. We abstract it routinely. Rick, do you realize we had Jim Roberts last month? We've got Jim Ducharme this month. You and I are not worthy. We are not worthy, sir. We are in the presence of greatness. That is true. In the presence of greatness. And he's a native speaker of French, so that he has no problem understanding what they're saying here in New Orleans, you know, because they've got all that laissez this, that, and that down here. Very difficult. No, I got you. I got you. Okay. So let's go into this month's issue. We have been requested to focus on something that has been a growing problem. Jim basically has a substantial experience in terms of the Canadian history of this disorder and, in fact, serves as an expert witness in one of these cases. I won't tell you what the case is just yet. Greg, give us the case. All right. What we've got is a 72-year-old gentleman, unfortunately he is also deaf, presents to an emergency department with an unusual chief complaint, back pain. Back pain, myalgias, malaise, and a low-grade fever. He is diagnosed as having the flu, whatever that is, and is sent home and is given some sort of mild pain medication and shuffled out the door. 
Now, if this sounds like the usual kind of case you see in the emergency department, I suppose I see about 10 of these a shift. And it is always interesting to me to see the diagnosis of the flu. I don't think doctors know what the flu really is. Now, his back pain increases. He gets worse. He has some mild neurological findings sent back to the hospital, and they do admit him. Unfortunately... He is admitted to a service which, for some reason, is not exactly aggressive about working this problem up. Two days later, they do an MRI. And what do you think they find? Well, as you might imagine, it's two days later, the MRI. And now, of course, he's paralyzed from the waist down, can't control his urine. And, of course, they find a spinal epidural abscess. This is a nasty one, that's for sure. The man is deaf. More difficult to get a history, more easily make uh, certain assumptions. You don't want to write every question down. That's just another back pain with the flu. And we don't know from the story that we have here whether there was anything else to sort of set people off, to make them think about other things. But if you haven't seen a case that presents exactly like this in the emergency department, you're not an emergency physician. This is a typical run-of-the-mill case. This case was found on the Internet, and it was put up there by a plaintiff's attorney. This plaintiff's attorney summarizes this case and advises lawyers of the things that they should be aware of in these cases and advises lawyers to look at, this is what the defense is going to say, here's how you counter them. So we're taking a look at this from this point of view of a plaintiff's attorney, because this plaintiff's attorney, in fact, in this case, obviously was successful. Well, that's obviously the height of science. But I think what you have to remember is, if he successfully litigated this case and produced some dollars, there are going to be other attorneys around the country who are interested in producing the exact same result. So we ought to know what's going to be said and what's going on out there. Yeah, you might not agree with all of these points that this person is going to make, but he's alerting his colleagues to how to attack these cases. And what he claims to be the standard of care, et cetera, et cetera, those are going to be very contestable. And clearly, he's going to overstate what everybody ought to know and do in routine back pain cases. Well, don't keep us in suspense, Rick. Tell us what he suggests. Well, number one, he says this is a rare diagnosis. He says something like one in 10,000 hospital admissions is done for this diagnosis. And, Jim, you mentioned there were... 32 cases. But in the last couple of years in Canada, there's been a heightened awareness of this, and medical legally, physicians are being made aware that there's been roughly 30 cases diagnosed in Canada in the last two years. In a country of 34 million people. Yes. So we're looking at this is truly the one in a million The one in a case. And was any of these litigated? I mean, I've got to believe a substantial subset of these. Well, I'm personally aware of at least five that have been litigated of those 32 cases. Wow. That basically sends a really strong message. And so this plaintiff attorney advises his colleagues, yes, it's a rare case. And that will be one of the assertions of the defense attorney. Well, it's so rare. How do you expect our doctor to make the diagnosis? But on the other end, he said this is a catastrophic case. This man is now paralyzed for the rest of his life and in a wheelchair. So that although it's rare, physicians still have a responsibility to be aware of this diagnosis and make this diagnosis. Rarity is not in and of itself a defense. But it depends on where in the course of the disease you actually encounter the patient. Rarity in someone who's sitting there with an inability to pee and uh, weak legs, rarity doesn't get you off the hot seat on that case. Without other symptoms, this is a stretch. This is a tough diagnosis to make. 
He says that physicians are required to be aware of this diagnosis and consider it, especially when pain begins suddenly. And I don't, frankly, believe that that's the case. Yeah, and I take exception to that, you know. One of the biggest problems with spinal epidural abscess is it's so insidious in its presentation. Yeah. And we're going to get into how it presents later, but probably one of the last things I would think of is someone with an acute, on sudden onset of pain in their back as yeah. being a spinal epidural abscess. That sounds abscess. something mechanical, something broke. Or vascular. So basically, he asserts that, which I think we all kind of would dispute, that suddenness is a kind of a part of the essential elements of the diagnosis here. I think that would be extremely rare. I guess I've never seen that case. You have, may have seen it. You just may not have diagnosed, diagnosed it. Exactly right. And he yeah. points out that sudden onset of back pain associated with neurologic symptoms without some other explanation for this thing should alert people that this is a diagnosis to be considered. Certainly not going to be the case in the majority, but it need to consider. And he says, this is a direct quote, it may be negligent for the doctor to discharge a patient with sudden back pain without examining for signs of infection by ordering, now listen to this, aerobic or anaerobic blood cultures and blood tests. This is particularly true if the patient is one in the high-risk category. Now, we would have to say that that's probably a gross overstatement, but this is what he believes will help his colleagues attack you when you miss this diagnosis. I understand that, but we shouldn't be deluded in this program and thinking that's high science. Let's say in 36 hours you get your cultures back. By that time, the guy could be fitted for a wheelchair. I mean, if you seriously consider this as the diagnosis, why would you be concerned about what the cultures would show two days down the road? Yeah, I probably have not even put this in my notes because this statement is just wacko. Right, it's wacko. wacko. Yeah, but it's a lawyer. (laughs) They don't care. Here's another quote he made. The standard of care requires a prompt referral to an infectious disease specialist, neurologist, or neurosurgeon. Any delay in making a referral may be the basis for a malpractice suit. Well, in the case that he had, delay of making the diagnosis was. It's interesting when you get it more specifically into the case, he said they just forgot to check the box that said STAT MRI. So they assumed it was a routine MRI and it was done two days later. Now, maybe they wanted it STAT, but they didn't convey it as that. So that was clearly an issue here. Well, in all defense of this plaintiff's attorney, if someone comes in and they have acute neurologic findings, you're in a total different ballgame and it doesn't matter what the underlying diagnosis is. You have an obligation at that moment to find out, and I'm sure the findings in this case were focal. They stopped at a certain point on the spinal cord, and you don't care whether it's a tumor, you don't care whether it's an abscess, you don't care whether it's a slip disc. You've got to find out if there's something impinging on the cord. And I'd agree, if they're coming in with neurologic symptoms, which was possibly the case here, referring them to another specialist is, in fact, delaying care. Absolutely. Well, this patient was admitted, so it's a matter of how do you trigger the but, specialists that but need he, to see this but person. But even so, the specialists aren't the one that need to make the next step. The next step has to be the MRI, which is discussion with the radiologist. If you're consulting an infectious disease person or a neurosurgeon, you're further delaying the test that needs to be done. By the way, we don't know in this case who the patient was admitted to. If this patient with the acute onset of a focal neurologic lesion was admitted to their family practitioner, that may be inappropriate. He addresses that actually. He wants them to see a specialist right away, infectious disease, neurology, neurosurgeon. And the last thing he says is, patients who are suspected of having an epidural office should not be at a community hospital. They need to be immediately transferred to a tertiary care hospital because of the consequences of these infections. Now, that's, that's absolutely wrong. Yeah. It's who do you have at that hospital? After all, 
The treatment for this is antibiotics. And the last time I checked, small hospitals, just like big hospitals, had antibiotics and surgical drainage. Now, I agree if you do not have the ability of a surgeon on staff to open and drain, then they need to be transferred. But to think that you have to have a cyber knife available for this kind of thing, this is relatively low-grade level neurosurgery we're talking about here. We're not talking about anything unusual or bizarre. If I had a choice of going 12 hours to get to another place or having a guy who knew his business drain me right now, I'd have him drain me right now. And finally, he says, many times the emergency physician fails to perform an appropriate medical history and consider the possibility of an epidural often making the diagnosis of muscular strain just because the law of averages say that's what it is 99.9% of the time or 99% of the time. So our focus for this month is one element of the nastiness of red flag back pains epidural abscess. And there's no consistent list. If you go in the net and books and here and there, you'll find all things that add to this list. But I think it is important for every physician to have in his head the red flags for back pain. You know, Rick, it's remarkable. There was a new guideline that came out in the Annals of Internal Medicine in October 2007 that talked about the management of low back pain and the indications for imaging. It was quite remarkable in that they said that if you had certain findings, radicular symptoms, or if you had focal back pain with malignancy, that the imaging of choice was, in fact, MRI, that X-ray was not of much benefit in people with atraumatic lesions. It's a waste of time. It's a actually. waste of time. Yep. CT is not the way to go. You really need to get them to MRI. And so MRI, in fact, has now become de facto part of emergency care. So how do you decide, as Greg says, you've got 10 people a day with low back pain, how do you decide who's the person that needs an MRI and how fast they need it? That's really where we have to do our screening because the only definitive test for a lot of these conditions is the MRI. So when do I push that button? I think that's important to go through. If you take a look at some of the conditions they talk about, you know, they talk about presentation less than age 20 or onset over age of 55 years. And if you remember the old AHCPR guidelines, if you were over 65, well, this gentleman was over 65. He was 72 years of age. If they say violent trauma, I think of it more of axial load trauma. So if you have a sudden deceleration on an axial basis, if you have a hyperflexion injury or a hyperextension injury, then you're more likely to get it. If you have more likely to get what? A compression fracture or an injury. Right. We're not talking about a an epidural abscess here. We're talking about about, injury. We're talking about compromise of the vasculature to the spinal cord. And we don't care what the cause is. That's right. Then we get to more medical things where a past medical history of malignancy and in fact the most recent guidelines state that if If you have midline back pain in a patient with known malignancy, you should not wait for neurologic findings or symptoms before you proceed to MRI. Systemic use of steroids over a period of time. Certainly the IV drug abuser is well known to be at risk for this, as is the diabetic, the immunocompromised patient, the systemically unwell. I think when you look at that group of patients, when you think about spinal epidural abscess, two of the key things that should send suspicion into your mind is the presence of a fever with midline back pain and particular attention to mid back pain if there's underlying pathology or a recent procedure. I think that if we're honest here at this table, the people we've seen this in, and none of us have a huge series on this, this is not common walking in the door, but the IV drug abuser is one of those people that comes in that when they tell me I've got fever, I've got this or that, the chances that they're septic somewhere is so good 
that that's a different level ball player. If they've had a recent procedure in their low back, if somebody's put a needle from the outside to the inside, that's a totally different kind of patient. I mean, I see lots of cancer patients every day. But patients who've had a recent procedure for their disc, an injection of steroids, or this, that, or another thing, that's the patient when they come in with temperature and, and a little tingling in their legs, that's one who's going to get the study. Right. This list that Jim's going down is an attempt to find three things, an infection, cancer, or a fracture. So if you have a substantial trauma, you may have a fracture. Okay, that's a patient for imaging. If you have some of these other findings, you're losing weight, you've got a low-grade fever, those kinds of things, well, maybe that goes along with cancer. Maybe it goes along with an infection kind of thing. So the big three these red flags are trying to find are fractures, cancers, and infection. We want to focus on the infection part. Let me take a little moment here to interject my personal pet peeve, and that is we don't any longer examine patients. It's like the residents don't even know what they're looking for when they examine a back pain patient. I'm from the old school that says back pain means you have your shoes and socks and pants off. No. Sorry, nurses. (laughs) I want the patient undressed because the end of the animal is either in their feet or up their butt because we're going to be looking for things, decreased sensation around the rectum. Problems in dorsiflexion of the toes, things like that. I don't know how you can say that you've examined a back adequately if they still have their shoes and socks and pants on. And I'm willing to bet half the people who are listening to this discussion, they will go into their department this week and there will be a back pain patient who still has their jeans and their boots still on. Well, we're going to get more specifically into the diagnostic elements and the charting elements and the historical elements. But this list is kind of important to have in our head because we're looking for fractures, infections, or cancer. That's it. Or compressions. Compressions of whatever cause. That can be your disc. That can be tumor. That can be infection. It can be a bony projection. But you know what? Jim's point about the fact that go to get the right test first is absolutely correct. I don't know why, if you're suspecting this, you would even think about a plain CT or a plain X-ray. The plain X-ray is something left over from the last century. It was of interest, I suppose, in the 40s and the 50s, but it has no use now. No. So if we just finish this up, I think that's important to remember that the infection part, IV drug abuser, the HIV patient, immunocompromised, and the diabetic are the big four that you'd want to think about in spinal epidural abscess. You know, there's other red flags where you're thinking about cauda equina or spinal cord compression. But again, I want to reiterate that in the presence of known malignancy, you're not waiting for those findings to get an MRI. Simple midline back pain in a patient with that underlying pathology is reason enough because by the time you get to neurologic findings or radicular symptoms, there's already compression. We also know that with malignancy that the treatment is much more now radiotherapy. Well, if you look at the anatomy of distal spinal cord, however, they do not all come on at once. And we're often given a little grace period here in that the first thing you should suspect is when they say they have some trouble with urination. Those fibers are incredibly sensitive. They will be involved before you lose sensation, before you've lost control of your rectal sphincter. Urination is one of those things when they say, you know, I can't pee or I'm dribbling. Ah, automatically, you're in a different risk group. I think we can all attest about how sensitive those fibers are, Greg. Absolutely. 
should we do just briefly talk about what cauda equina syndrome is, or do you want to let's just go through that just sure. in, a, in a minute? So cauda equina is, is difficulty with urination and micturition, loss of anal sphincter tone or fecal incontinence, some type of saddle anesthesia, basically the area you'd sit on if you were on a saddle. But one of the things that's really remarkable is that you can have differing levels of anesthesia on either leg. So you could have motor symptoms on one side, sensory symptoms on the other. You may not quite have the same findings from one leg to the other. It may be more dense in the foot on one side. And so you shouldn't be looking for a symmetric, necessarily symmetric area. The anatomic point here is the feet are not the end of the animal. Mammals, the end of their spinal cord fibers are up their butt. So just because they still have ankle jerks, ankle jerks are S1, S2. And because they have dorsiflexion of the great toe, that's L5. There you go back into that history and physical exam. Yeah, I'm sorry about this, Rick. But people will think because they have sensation in their feet, they've got to be normal. No, the best thing you can do is scratch near the anus and look for an anal wink. Just Wink. remember that old... Uh, like you want a date kind of thing? Old, well, what, rhyme uh, there. Rick, we're in New Orleans now. What happens in New Orleans stays in New Orleans. Go ahead. But just remember, S234 keeps the feces off the floor. Right. Just to state the words, Cordaquine syndrome is pressure on the nerve tracks below where the spinal cord, cord ends. ends. Yes. Correct. Uh, the horse tail or something like that. equina. The horse tail. tail of the yes. horse, right. The compression can be from a wide variety of things, but it pre- presents with this pattern that we just went through. Right. You know, maybe the other one we would all like to know about is we're seeing more and more with inflammatory conditions is uh, ankylosing spondylitis and other conditions, which we see with Crohn's disease, we see on its own and can be a devastating disease to the younger male often, sometimes the younger female, under the age of 40, marked morning stiffness persistent limitations in spinal movements, joint involvement, and you look for that other systemic disease, iritis, colitis, uh, something like that, family history of autoimmune disorders. You have to talk to people and get some family history. Well, we're not going to get sued for this. Well, are we, Greg? (laughs) Ankylosing spondylitis, as soon as I hear that phrase, that this is what they've got, first of all, you've got to throw the plain x-ray out because that's the bamboo spine. I think it's very difficult to interpret. And if they had sudden onset back pain in somebody with ankylosing spondylitis, I want to look pretty carefully at that. And again, the only study of choice in that situation is the MRI. And if you don't have one at your hospital, you don't have somebody read it, perfectly reasonable to transfer that patient to a patient. Yeah, well, you all have them, but they shut down at 5 o'clock. Yeah, that's but, I mean, it's not right. Community hospitals, it's like MRI after hours. What are you, kidding? Yeah. And see, I don't understand that because the radiologist doesn't have to do it. A tech does it. We could send the film anywhere you want in the world to have it read. Does it really matter whether a guy in India or a guy in Australia is reading that film as long as they're good? So that brings up the question, does your hospital have an MRI tech available 24-7 to do these studies? Because obviously you cannot be waiting till let's do it tomorrow morning. All I'm saying is if you don't have it available, you have to be honest about that. You can't go into the patient and say, by the way, you're just going to have to piss on yourself for the next eight hours or 12 hours till we get a tech in here. That, to me, necessitates you making a phone call. I'm not one of those guys who abuses this. I don't think emergency docs should be asking for MRIs on simple things that can wait. This is a different level problem. And I think even in Canada, where we have a lot less MRIs in the United States, if you're in a community hospital where you don't have an MRI, it's become clear in the last five years that there are two or three 
acute conditions that emergency physicians have to be able to recognize and use an MRI for. And therefore, whether you're in a hospital with a machine like this or not, you have to know that you have to get your patient to that machine. There are certain conditions that have to be diagnosed with MRI. We've listed some of them here. It's the onus of us as physicians to get the patient to the right test right. in a timely fashion. See, I don't think you need an MRI of your knee injury tonight. I don't think you need one of your wrist. I don't think you need any of those things. When you've got tissue, which is so easily compromised by lack of oxygen, i.e. neuro tissue, if it was my family member, and that was the suspected diagnosis. I want it done now. You're not going to get much sympathy saying, well, we didn't want to call the tech in kind of thing. No, the last time I checked, by the way, the hospital gets paid to do these procedures they quite get, handsomely. They, yeah, they get paid a lot of money. They get paid a lot of money. And again, the other thing is, if the guy at your hospital doesn't want to read the film, there are people somewhere who will read that film. So can we do an abstract? Emergency Medical Abstracts has an abstract on this. Um, how does that work now, How out? can you get an abstract of an abstract? Yeah, we, that's that exactly what we're going to do. Is that a sentence? This was, abstract was uh, published, Journal of Emergency Medicine, by Davis, April of 2004. It's a review of 63 cases of spinal epidurapsis that was seen at UC San Diego. And I thought it would be reasonable to go through what they found. Half of the cases had two or more ED visits. So what you're saying is the standard of care, if standard is modal... The standard of care is to miss it at least twice. And it may seem as well, Greg, that it, probably that first time the patient shows up, it's very insidious. Right. That some midline back pain, plus or minus a fever, nothing else going on. Sort of reminds you what like meningococcal meningitis can present <laughs> as in the first couple of hours. Absolutely. It's like a viral illness. You know, every time I read one of these cases, I just mop my brow and say, there but for the grace. Because mm -hmm. if it had been a busy day and I was there and this guy came in early, there was no fever at that moment or no neuro finding and nothing to tick me off. You know, it could be my name on that summons. Yeah, but you would send that patient home. Yeah, and I'd probably send that patient home. And you know what? As long as you're honest about come back if this isn't going right, back pain is so ubiquitous in the Western society. I don't think Canada is any different than the United no. States in that. No, low back pain is everywhere. 35 to 45% of the public will have back pain at some point in their life. That's right. It's like headache. 70% of adults will have a major headache at some time in their career, and that's just the way it is. Let me tell you what else they said. Residual neurologic deficits are more common, 45%, when the diagnosis is delayed versus when it is made initially, 13%. So that is a kind of connecting the dots, not and good. I think that's important, Rick. I think it's important that every one of us realize that if we're waiting for neurologic findings, we're already dooming the patient to persistent morbidity. If there's reasonable reason to believe that this may be right. the underlying disease. Right. But no one here is suggesting that everybody with low back pain get a STAT MRI. But if a drug shooter comes in, say, i got central back pain, oh, I've been had some chills for a couple days, right. I'd do an MRI on them. Because if you can get it before, clearly the outcomes are much better, if you can, before they get the neurological By the way, the reason we operate is not to reverse the symptoms, because they reverse poorly. What it is is to stop the progression That's right. of the symptoms. Yeah, they say the pathophysiology of this is not only compression, but vascular compromise. So you can right. get an ischemic area because you made this compression or there was some other issue that caused that blood vessel to occlude. The classic triad of back pain, fever, and neurologic deficits. How often did that occur? 8% of the cases. Right. So the classic presentation is rare. Or but is isn't that the definition of what classic is? In my career, I've come to understand if you have something classic, it means it's there less than 20% of the time. <laughs> 
Well, Mark Twain said a classic is a book that's often quoted and never read. <laughs> they point out some additional risk factors. Now, you listed a bunch of risk factors. Risk factors for this disorder were found in 98% of the cases. That's why we have to know them. I would like to add to your list, they mentioned liver disease, renal failure, indwelling catheters, urinary catheter, that's a, a source of a risk. Recent invasive spinal, you mentioned that, spinal procedures. Distant sites of infection. They say you need to take a look at these people's skin to see if they have any abscess, boils, and all of this MRSA that's going on around now. You have to take a look. Well, holy, holy, that means that those people ought to be undressed. And examined. <laughs> yes, and examined. Well, what a might, concept. Examine. You might have to take a look at their back and chest and see you're going to get signs of infection. Because <laughs> this thing comes from someplace. Number needed to treat for spinal pain and risk factors. How many MRIs do you need to do to pick up one case? They said 50. 50 MRIs to pick up one. I think that what you... Low well, threshold. I think what you have to do though, is look down the road and say, it's who's selecting the cases. This is absolutely a selection bias. It's where you are. It's what you do. If you're at a, an inner city hospital where lots of these conditions exist and you're thinking about this more, that may be the case. If you're in Ishpeming, Michigan, and they haven't seen one for five years, I bet it's a lot tougher to pick that. And you know, up. I can't imagine trying to justify to my radiologist... 50 times in a row. I think he's got a spinal epidurals. Can we do an MRI? Well, let me tell you, from a societal standpoint, though, if we actually look at the cost, not the charge, but the actual cost of 50 MRIs versus taking care of a paraplegic for the next 30 years, the study's actually quite cheap. Why count less than 10,000 in 40% of the cases? 98% of them had a SED rate greater than 20. This is it. You got to consider the SED rate in these cases. Ninety-eight percent had a SED rate more than twenty. Wait a second, I can hear a CRP coming on. Uh, I didn't say anything uh, about that. No, no, out. not me. Time out. What these numbers really say is, who cares about the white count? That's what that says. If you've got the history and the physical to go along with it, I don't care if it's normal. What it really says is the SED rate. You're waiting for the SED rate. If I had a guy who had anesthesia near his rectum, I'm not waiting for the SED rate to come back. Well, that's because you have some other hard findings. These are in cases that are very, very subtle. But, Rick, let's take this case we've just discussed. He was first diagnosed having a flu-like syndrome. He already had a fever. He already had a fever. So how many people do you think with influenza have an elevated SED rate? That's a good question. I don't know the answer. So there, in that case, you're talking about false positives for that's this right. diagnosis. By the way, how many people with influenza have no cough? <laughs> this guy had sore muscles. The last time I checked, influenza had other findings going with it. I think the term flu is put down. It's like gastroenteritis. It's the diagnosis of the intellectually destitute. I think it's an important point. You have to have fever, myalgia, and cough. There's no such thing as the stomach flu. You've bastardized the diagnosis here. We fever, say that all myalgia, the time to patients. Cough. Well, you say that all the time. Well, I never say that to patients. But what you I got tell, the stomach flu. That's well, going around a lot. The There's a lot of that says that I say, I give them a copy of Harrison's and say, would you please show me that one in this big book? Just show it to me one place. But I think, again, what we have to take away from this, Rick, is that although it says the SED rate's very sensitive for this, we know it's not going to be specific. And I think we have to, again, look at once you've got a pattern of symptoms with risk factors we discussed, there is only one gold standard test. And any other test you order 
is delaying time to get to the gold standard test. Right. Well, you know, even I, Mr. Tester, have acknowledged that it is routine to not make this diagnosis on the first visit. In fact, 75% in totality of the cases are delayed in terms of their diagnosis. So that means these people are fairly down the road when a SED rate is ultimately ordered. So the real question is, is if I do a SED rate on the first visit of these cases, Will it be 98% sensitive or not? And the answer is probably not. We don't know that. I don't think anybody's got a series on that. So that's what these guys uh, from UC Santa or whatever found. So let's go on. There's another good article talking about this. In November 9th, 2006, of the New England Journal, I just wanted to bring up three points that they brought up, Rick. The first one they say is regarding pitfalls is be careful to order imaging studies of the correct area. And I think that's essential. In fact, I remember that the patient I was involved with actually had a CT of a specific area of their neck, but not all of their neck. And you have to remember that you have to examine the patient. There's that phrase again, uh, right, Greg? That'll never fly. Palpate for spinal tenderness in the level of deficit if present. Patients with altered level of conscious dementia may need a good neurologic exam. The lower extremities and sphincter tone to suggest a diagnosis. And I think that's important because some of the people we're talking about at risk, diabetics, HIV patients, drug abusers, elderly people may well have an altered level of consciousness that can mask things even further. And finally, and I can't stress this enough, you have no idea in these patients when the compression is going to start and end up in neurologic deficit. And that deficit is going to aggravate, and as Greg says, is going to persist if it's not treated. So you have to understand the clock's running, and rapid access to antibiotics and getting that MRI done. So what you're saying is, time is anal sphincter muscle. (laughs) Time is tone. Time Time is tone. is tone. I like that. That's very good. Okay, now given what we know, what are the elements of a decent documentation regarding these cases? Well, I think you have to have a general statement of the health of the patient. If we're looking at a 17-year-old cheerleader who's just pulled her back in practice, that's totally different than a 42-year-old down-and-out druggie who's got track marks on their arm. So there ought to be some statement. That's why we do things like review of systems. That's why we look at past medical illness. As soon as it says, this gentleman is receiving a series of injections for his chronic low back pain. We see that a lot now. People who are going to the pain management clinics, getting these injections. More and more interventions in pain clinics. More and more interventions. And I think that you need to know the general animal who you're dealing with. If they have underlying liver disease, if they have underlying infections, if they're on immunosuppressive drugs, that's a different person. But you know, Greg, you bring that up about this whole idea of know the person you're dealing with. I think it works both ways. When we have someone comes in who's an IV drug abuser, barriers go up. You immediately say, oh, I don't want to deal with this guy, IV drug abuser. Pain seeker, and, and medication drug seeker. seeker. Can we just get him It's out a of hot our... button. It's a hot button. See, when an asthma patient comes in, you don't say, oh, another damn oxygen seeker. Right. <laughs> okay. But what you do say is another drug seeker. You know what? My history of this is those guys, because they stick enough stuff into them that's weird, that's unusual, that's been produced in a spoon someplace, they can have bad things. And in general, I think that they're just as sick as anybody else I see. But you know, it's amazing when you think about it. The IV drug abuser, I think if you take a look at the statistics, that if an IV drug abuser has a fever, he has a 65% chance of having a serious bacterial infection. Even a febrile neutropenic receiving chemotherapy, 
only has a 25 to 30 percent chance of serious bacterial infection. Right. So these people are much greater risk, but because they hit one of our hot buttons and we don't like to deal with them, we have to be careful to recognize that they're influencing our behavior and we have to put it aside to deal with them objectively. Absolutely. I think what you have to do is take a deep breath and say, you know what, I'm not going to let their background interfere with reasonable, objective medical care. And so you just have to say, what if it was Mother Teresa wandered in with the same complaint? What would I do? Yeah, there's a really a negative bias towards these cases, which is just a setup for making an error, which would convert that drug abuser to a paralyzed, very wealthy drug abuser. Right. I think fundamentally... Your record needs to know that you have considered this diagnosis by putting in there those kinds of things that are the red flags in terms of its onset, its duration, its intensity, those kinds of things, the fever, the recent infections, whether they've had these red flag conditions. By the way, going back to what that first plaintiff's attorney said, sudden onset, that has not been my experience. These are people very indolent. It can be coming on slowly. What is always interesting to me is the people who say, I don't remember jerking, hitting, falling. All I know is I now have back pain centrally in my body. And no, I don't usually have back pain. I don't usually have this or that. Yeah, that's one of the points I was particularly wanting to make. I believe people feel compelled to ascribe an etiology for why their back is hurting. Like, well... It's been hurting for three days. It probably happened when I was lifting up the laundry basket. Well, did you notice it happening immediately? When, no, not really, but you know, that probably had something to do with it. Right. That is going to lead you down the garden path to an error because, in fact, they are just speculating what might have been the cause, but they can't nail it by any stretch of the imagination. You know, if you're going to look at that chart, too, you've got to examine something. For God's sake, examine the place where they're having the pain. I can't believe the number of people who casually sort of look at these folks and and don't say, does this hurt? Push on it. If it's warm, if it's red, if it's central, that isn't what most of my back pain patients have. Those are odd findings. I think it's useful to say afebrile, no warmth, no point tenderness, this sort of thing. You know what? I think that leads us in certain directions. That kind of defensive charting on the chart is extremely helpful if we have to defend it. But you know, Greg, you talk about that. And most of our mechanical back pains don't have midline tenderness. It's right? para, paraspinal. Paraspinal tenderness. Exactly. And, you know, you think about the things that can give you midline tenderness. Well, we talk about it in trauma patients. Right. We talk about it when we're concerned about discitis. We currently talk about it with spinal epidural abscess. We talk about it in a lot of conditions, compression fractures of the spine. So, in fact, we were basically already saying that people with midline pain are already defining themselves as perhaps something we should be looking more carefully at. Oh, absolutely. Some of the other things that are just pro forma in my mind, and I can't tell you the number of times I look at charts and they haven't checked it, you have checked the distal feet, you've checked the reflexes, you've looked to see if there's sensation between the thighs and around the rectum. You don't have to do a rectal on everybody. That's a misnomer. All you have to do is if you scratch the skin and the anus winks, if the muscle moves, you know enough. Now, if it doesn't do that, then a rectal exam would be a reasonable thing to do. But most people, if you scratch that skin, will get a movement or a sensation and and will tighten the sphincter down, and you can watch that. To me, that's good indication that those fibers are working well. Well, the other thing is is that this compression does not have to result in 
taking out one nerve, L2, L3, but it can be a little this, little that kind of thing. Right. And I think one of the subtle neurologic examinations, which is very important, is watching them walk in terms of their... The I've nature, heard somebody say that. Yes, the, I have. The nature of their gait, because that will pick up a lot of subtleties that you may not otherwise pick up. By the time you lose your knee, re- knee flex, it's going to be pretty obvious, but you have to obviously check for the knee re- reflex. Right. But there's going to be these subtle differences. Well, it's not quite equal, and the person's walking a little strange. So we're going to document all of that stuff, making it clear that we are looking for the red flags in our chart. Lab, you want to throw in a little lab there, guys? Come on, throw that set rate in there. Come on, give me yeah, a break, yeah. will you? <laughs> we'll let you throw it in. But again, if you're waiting to make this diagnosis, I hope that it falls out of a laboratory test. I just think that's wrong because there is a specific <laughs> test which says yes or no, we operate or we don't. We got it or we don't, and that has nothing to do with the laboratory. My position is is that I'm talking about really, really early cases, frankly, which and where the data says we don't know whether set rates know. up in those cases or not. But paper after paper after paper says not only spinal epidural abscess, it's disc-based infections. The osteomyelitis, you know, exactly. Yeah, there you go. They all give that midline pain. So we talked about the lab, and then lastly, the imaging, which Jim has made the case that that is the gold standard kind of thing. Well, have we beaten this one to death, guys? I think so. I think what we've basically said here, and I'll let Mel do the summarizing at the end, but this is real. People are interested in it. And if you don't know about it, believe me, the entire plaintiff's bar does. And they will be very happy to educate you on this disease. Well, Rick, uh, Jim, Greg, you wanted to do another tape without me. That's just fine. I don't get to go to New Orleans and have a great time and have beignets and hang out and listen to jazz. No, no. I have to stay in sunny Woodland Hills. But that's all right with me because travel kind of sucks right now. So let me do some kind of a summary of what the boys, the the boys themselves have been discussing over the last about, uh, you know, 30, 40 minutes. It's all about spinal cord syndromes. Now, they wanted to focus on spinal epidural abscess, which is good. But there was sort of the more general thing about bad back pain. And we've got to remember the bad causes of back pain. And the way I think about the bad causes of back pain is to divide it up clinically into an under different groups. You can have cancer as a cause of your back pain. You can have an infection as a cause of your back pain. You can have trauma as a cause of your back pain. And then you can have neurological manifestations associated with your back pain of any cause. So the quarter equina syndrome is the one that they talk about on this tape. Let's first then think about infections as a cause of your back pain. What are some of the red flags? So there's the concept. You have back pain. You have a million back pain patients. I have back pain. I've had it since I was 17. Many of you out there listening have back pain. But what are the red flag causes of back pain? What are the things that you see in the history and the physical exam that make you think sparky? I need to do something extra here. I need to do some imaging here. I need to do some further work up here. I need to admit this patient here. Well, when it comes to infections as a broad group, you've got to think fever and back pain, bad. You've got to think high risk for infection. And the one that comes up all the time is IV drug users. The other ones that come up is recent admission to hospital with a bacterial pneumonia or some other bad bacteria. You've got to think they've recently had blood cultures for some reason. They've recently been instrumented so they could have a GI scope or a GU scope. Or they're immune suppressed, and then you go through your whole list, you know, diabetes and steroids and uh, cancer and, and cancer therapy. So think about it in that way. Once you've decided, I believe that this could be an infectious cause of this person's cancer, then one needs to get busy. 
So IP drug users is one that comes up all the time. What busyness do you need to get up to? You have a whole choice, a whole range of things that you can do that they talked about. You can get plain films useless. You can get ESRs. You can get C-reactive proteins looked for, systemic signs of inflammation. But none of these things is very sensitive, and certainly none of them is very specific. And you can do blood cultures, but you're not going to wait the two days for those to get back. So in the end, if your history and physical examination suggests that infection is high on the list, then the really the only test you want to do is an MRI, and you have to get busy with it fast. Now, can you substitute a high-resolution multi-detector CT scan? Yes, if you don't have MRI. But I think the literature now is pretty clear that MRI is the way to go. MRI picks up most of these infections. MRI is the test of choice to rule out infection as a cause of back pain if you have MRI available. If you don't, then you might do a CT scan, and if it's positive, then you can go, and if it's negative, then you still might have to get an MRI. So IV drug users. IV drug users are an exquisitely high-risk group. Now, often they have associated social disorders, personality disorders, and just sort of drug-induced disorders that we don't want to deal with. But when an IV drug user comes in with back pain, it is a four-alarm fire. You have to be very concerned. You have to think. Your mindset has to be, this, ladies and gentlemen, is a spinal epidural abscess or osteomyelitis or some other very bad infection that I have to find. Why? Because if I don't find it right now, if I wait till the next visit, then they may have devastating neurological symptoms and you're going to get sued for it, which is the more minor of the issues. The bigger issue is that this person is not going to be able to walk. If it's high up, they may not be able to breathe. And let me tell you about a case I recently had. So we had a lady, schizophrenia and IV drug user, a great combination for your emergency department. So she came in to another emergency department four hours before coming into our emergency department with an abscess on her leg. But her complaint was, I have leg pain and weakness at this other unnamed hospital. They IND'd it and they sent her away. She then presented just four hours later saying, I now can't walk. I can't walk. And so she was billed as actually a conversion disorder. This schizophrenic lady who's an IV drug user can't walk. Therefore, she must be, of course, insane. So we go and examine this lady. And what do we find? We find a very pleasant lady, schizophrenic, track marks all over the place. And she says, I can't move my legs. And you try and move her legs, they don't move very much. And actually, she now says, I can't move my arms very much. And you pick up her arm and you drop it and it flops down like a fish. And then you do a sensory level. And at C4, there is clearly a cutoff. This lady is in trouble. She has no fever, but she is an IV drug user, and now she has hard neurological findings. And sure enough, we get busy on her. We draw blood cultures. We put in a line. We give her antimicrobials that will cover staph and strep and MRSA. And we call neurosurgery, and we call MRI immediately. And then it plays out. We have basically decided clinically she has a spinal epidural abscess. She gets her MRI, and sure enough, she has an epidural abscess that goes from C4 all the way down to about uh, her mid-thoracic level and even further than that. She gets redlined to the OR, and she has surgery, and she has no improvement in her neurological findings, and that's the important point. Once you have neurological findings, it is very difficult to reverse those. Now, there is now some evidence, there's some suggestion that if you get in there quickly, if the neurological findings just started, that you may get some reversal. So you go on that hope. But it's really, as Greg talked about, it's more about preventing the progression of the disorder. It's more about preventing them getting worse. Maybe you have that hope that you can reverse some of them, 
But that's not what you're in this about. So if you possibly can, you're trying to diagnose them and get them in a therapy before they get symptoms. And as the boys pointed out, though, that can be very difficult, that it is standard care for these people to present one, two, three times before the diagnosis is made. Any idiot, even I can make the diagnosis when I have the person in front of me and they can't move their legs and arms. But the true clinician, the clinician that's going to give good medical care and avoid medical legal hassles is the one that's heads up enough to diagnose them before they have hard neurological findings. So, ladies and gentlemen, if nothing else, remember IV drug use and back pain is a four-alarm fire. You have to get busy. And Greg also suggested MRI is not inexpensive, but how much do these lawsuits go for when we miss it? And the answer is between one and many millions of dollars. You can buy a lot of MRIs for that. What is the appropriate uh, rate of MRIs that are negative in this circumstance? It may be 10, 50, 100. It may be 1,000 before you really are wasting cash. Now, I don't suggest that you do MRIs in all of these people. In everybody that comes in with back pain, clearly that is silliness. But when they have one of these red flags, we've talked about the infection red flags, it is time to get busy. If you believe they have it, put a line in, draw blood cultures, give antimicrobials, you know, Vank and Gent and anything else you can think of at the time, call neurosurgery, get the MRI going right now, document very well, and try and expedite this care to the OR. If they have the disorder, they need to get to the OR fast. Now, the other causes of back pain that they went over is cancer is a cause of back pain. So if you have cancer and back pain, again, you must presume that the cancer is causing the back pain. Now, unlike uh, an infection, spinal epidural abscess, you have a little bit more time if they don't have neurological findings to work out exactly what's going on. So you have time. And in this case, MRI is a great test, but CT is also very good. What you're looking for is metastasis of the back that are causing pain. But you also obviously want to do a very good neurological exam. You want to make sure that the cancer is not pressing on the cord, producing a neurological syndrome. If there is a neurological syndrome, that's obviously very bad. But cancer plus back pain equals badness. Is it a four-alarm fire or it's about a three-and-a-half-alarm fire? Make sure they don't have neurological findings. If they have neurological findings, okay, get busy. If they don't have neurological findings, then you can work them up. Again, as I say, CT or MRI is very good. What are the red flags that suggest that cancer is causing this back pain? Well, by far the easiest and the best one is a history of cancer, even a remote history of cancer. So they had breast cancer 10 years ago. Now they have back pain. Presume that the cancer is now in their back. Other things to think about is weight loss, night sweats, family history of cancer, elderly. All of these are very concerning that the cancer is in their back. The B symptoms in particular, I'm losing weight, I've got night sweats. Other causes of back pain to think about, trauma. Now, a trauma is usually pretty easy. I got hit by a car that was doing 70 miles an hour, and now I have back pain. Okay, I can make that diagnosis. I can get the x-rays, and I can get busy. But also remember the one group of patients that we tend to forget about, or it's easier to miss fractures, and that's the elderly and those with spinal osteoporosis. So an elderly woman falls over and trips and lands on her butt, then she may have multiple fractures from that, whereas a young, healthy person falls and lands on their butt, they have a sore butt. So the elderly with osteoporosis. So trauma is a cause of back pain. Minor trauma in some people can cause fractures. And then there's the spinal cord syndromes. There's the cauda syndrome. And they went over this very well in the lecture. 
and the spinal cord syndromes, these, and what does Corda Equina syndrome looks like? It starts with, according to Richard Dayo, who is really the uh, legend when it comes to back pain. And again, they summarized it very well. It's urinary symptoms are the first thing. So I can't hold my water or I've got dribbling. So overflow or retention or incontinence. So if they've got back pain plus urinary symptoms, four alarm fire. There's pressure on the end of the cord. Get busy. If they've got back pain and they're pooping themselves, four alarm fire. Get busy. MRI. We need a neurosurgeon right now. Uh, they've got back pain and they've got some uh, subtle uh, anesthesia or a change in sensation around where you sit on a bicycle. Four alarm fire. Time to get busy. Time to get an MRI. If they've got back pain and lateralizing neurological symptoms, we don't worry so much about this. If they've got a little foot drop, if they've got some sensory changes in one foot, this is not such a big deal. But it's the patients who have central cord-like syndromes. Now, I say lateralizing symptoms, uh, neurological symptoms are not such a big deal, except in high-risk patients, obviously. So if somebody has a radiculopathy with no other risk factors and they've got a little change in sensation of foot, you say, you know, that sucks. You've probably got a you know, compression on the nerve root and we'll get you an outpatient workup. But if that person has a history of cancer, if that has a person has some red flags for infection, well, get busy. Get extremely busy because that may be the beginning of some manifestations that are lateral, which may also turn out to be central later on. So it really gets trumped by their other risk factors. If they have lateralizing symptoms, but they have high-risk features, if they have red flags, just get busy anyway. It's only the low-risk patient, the person like me who comes in with some sensory loss in their foot, that you say, look, you've got no other risk factors, we'll work you up as an outpatient. I hope that's all clear. I thought they did a fantastic job of this. I thought they also brought up the points that were very well taken, that you're going to miss these, unfortunately. These people who present, particularly with infections, and that was the big sort of focus of this, this discussion, people with infections will often present indolent. They will not have a fever. They won't have many risk factors or the risk factors will be hard to find. You'll do a good physical examination and there'll be no symptoms there. There'll be no signs there. And yet they will come back two days later and they will have it. You cannot beat yourself up about this. All you can do is do the right thing, do a good history, do a good physical, document it well. These people every now and then are going to sneak up and bite you. Now, they say some numbers that it's really rare, and what I really found useful was what Greg said. Just because a disorder is rare doesn't necessarily mean that that is a defense for you in court. It's only if it's rare and it presented subtly that it's going to help you out. If it's rare and it presents classically, they can't walk, then sending somebody home who can't walk is not going to help you just because it's a rare disorder. So think about the red flags. Think about infection and all the things that that looks like. Think about cancer. Think about fractures. Think about neurological symptoms. There are more, but that's sort of a nice, tidy way to uh, go over these. And there are some recent reviews that will be in the summary that were talked about on the tape. So ladies and gentlemen, this is Mel Herbert summarizing on behalf of Greg Henry, Jim Dusham, and uh, Richard Bucata on this very, very important cause of back pain. The focus was on infections. The focus was on spinal epidural abscesses. Very bad disease. Try and pick it up early. Okay, moving on. To tell the truth, potential liability for concealing physician impairment. This is a great article. It was published in the Journal of Clinical Anesthesia by Brian Liang, who is an MD... PhD, JD. He needs a life. He's in serious need of a life. Yeah, listen, if you want to read this paper yourself, it was in volume 19 of page 638. 
It is 2007, very recent article. Let me just summarize this case. This is about anesthesiologists. Four anesthesiologists had the contract to do anesthesia at a hospital. Doesn't this sound like the beginning of a joke? Four anesthesiologists <laughs> walk into a bar. Go ahead. And one of the four basically became addicted to drugs, was using a patient's Demerol, diverting it, and in the process of being under the influence, was found to be performing anesthesia poorly. So his colleagues basically terminated him from the group with cause, this use of narcotics. With prejudice, as they say. Yes. yes. He then goes and gets a job with a locum's tenens group and is working at another hospital. In the process of their credentialing, two of his former colleagues write letters to the credentialing organization in the hospital saying that this physician was excellent never making any reference to the fact that he was terminated or the issue of why he was terminated. And they knew or should have known that he was terminated for cause. Yes, ultimately there was a lawsuit because at the second hospital where this anesthesiologist was working, a woman was having a tubal ligation and she died as a result of her an anesthesia accident. A lawsuit was brought obviously, and it was determined, however, that this doctor was terminated for cause, did have a problem with the use of Demerol, and they therefore sued the anesthesia group that had fired him. Why? Because they actively, what is the term here? Misrepresentation, probably. Made with the intent to deceive, causing justifiable reliance with resultant injury because they read the letters, good guy, okay, hire him up, when in fact he was not a good guy, they know it, and this was an attempt to deceive. When the $8 million award took place, the anesthesia group, where the two doctors wrote the positive letters, plus the hospital that that anesthesia was initially working at, were sued and they paid half the $8 million settlement because the hospital dragged its feet in terms of letting the other hospital know what had transpired with that doctor. And I'll tell you what, it'd be unlikely that the anesthesiologist's malpractice insurance would cover that. This is fraud. This is fraud. This is what they call an intentional, an intentional act. And that's not what we sell insurance for. As somebody who writes these policies, let me tell you, we would not cover that under the policies I'm involved with. They'd pay that out of their own pocket. But wouldn't there have to be at some point, physician is released with costs, in this case from substance abuse, isn't it routine, Greg, that the licensing bureau of that state would be advised of such a condition? You're supposed to. In the state of Michigan, if there's an action taken about privileges at a hospital of a physician, you're supposed to notify the board of licensure that an action has been taken against a license. So if we have a physician who's, let's say, being monitored for drugs, lots of things, changes in attitude, depression, let's say they've been suicidal, all these other sorts of things, that is supposed to go to the Board of Medicine in that state so that they can follow this and see what's going on. The fact that they didn't notify the board may also be a violation. It'd be interesting to know whether the hospital was aware of this because the hospital has an independent obligation if they have a physician who has termination or privileges restricted to notify the state. Right, because for that physician to have any chance of getting back into good graces, his licensing bureau has to make sure that there's been proper recuperation and supervision of cases and that the physician has recovered from this illness. Monitoring, exactly right. And I think this is an evil case on multiple levels. The first one is, remember the old line about when first we practice to deceive, passing this guy off so that be a good guy, don't say anything rude, don't say anything bad. That is not often the best policy. You don't have to slander or slam anyone, but to pass him off 
as high quality that we didn't have problems probably is both morally and ethically wrong. In fact, if you don't like what's being said about someone, when you get the letter, you can always decline giving a letter of endorsement. You can say, I don't feel I can give this sort of endorsement. Believe me, that kind of phrase sends all the message that needs to be sent. I just sort of wonder, you know, I'd like to look at the hierarchical system that is medicine, and if there's an impaired physician, uh, the nurses being in a position of, in the hierarchy, being unwilling to advise someone of their concerns about a physician, or another physician saying, geez, I don't want to point the finger, it makes me raise the question is, just like in suspected child abuse, where the person who's raising the possibility, can they in some way be considered protected? if they bring forward the possibility for fear of lawsuit against themselves. I think it would be very difficult if they go through the correct process at the hospital and say, I can't convict you of anything. I'm raising the issue that requires, from a medical staff standpoint, proper investigation of X or Y. If a nurse does that, she is protected. Basically, if they fired a nurse for legitimately raising an issue like that, that would be triple damages sort of thing. That would not go well. This was a very well-done article. It also mentions that they failed to report this physician to the National Practitioner Data Bank. I didn't know that that was a requirement in these cases, but at least they allege that it is. One of the things I also think is important in this case is that it's been my perception, being on the hospital's executive medical committee for the last 23 years, that the medical staff and the hospital are extraordinarily adverse to doing anything that will harm the physician, uh, physician's reputation and that we lean over backwards to give them the benefit of the doubt, always with the fear behind us that they're going to sue us for something that we didn't follow proper procedure, they inhibited their ability to make income, da, 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 da. and this paper says, no, there's two sides to this. Disproportionate fear of being sued when the doctor is in fact a bad actor is countered by the fact that these people lost four million dollars between the hospital and the anesthesiologist because they didn't tell the truth they lied well the other thing is who really lost here was the patient the hospital lost eight million dollars well, the, the, the two of them together lost eight million dollars that family lost their mother would you well, take eight million dollars for your this mother? article also brings up the point that the impaired physician is not getting a break here because he's not being identified, put into diversion, his practices in an attempt to be salvaged, etc., etc., etc. So now that he's killed this person, he's done. Yeah. His career is over. Well, there's a summary. It could have been a summary here, and that is you can get sued for doing either one. So do what's right and then let the thing come out. You know, I'd much rather be sued for telling the truth and giving someone a little bit of grief than covering this up. I think the docs who wrote false letters of recommendation, they have to live only with the loss of the money. But their actions were approximately related to the death of a patient. That's a serious moral question. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we've gotten that point covered. Let's do some letters, Greg. Okay. Greg, you've got a letter. Yeah, it's mailbag time. Mel, Greg, Rick... And today, Jim, there have been several instances where a dictation was lost or somehow not done, and then the chart was needed by legal counsel. Woohoo, not good. At this point, the emergency department physician is asked to redictate the chart, but now there is little or no recollection of the case. Boy, do I know it. 
I mean, anybody who's honest who's listening to this has walked out of the room and can't remember in 30 seconds whether it's the right hand or the left hand. So don't tell me you remember a month ago that they had a split-second sound. His question is, how should we go about dictating this type of chart, and how does it affect the physician's liability if a lawsuit follows? I find it hard to defend myself if I can't even remember the case. And this is sent to us by a loyal listener, Tony Abdullah. Thanks, Tony. And he's in Cincinnati, Ohio. Gentlemen, what do you think we ought to do here? I did see this one that was emailed to us. And I was going to say, Greg, what do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me tell you. Uh, Because I have no idea what to do here. You can't lie. You can't remember. This comes up all the time. You're the expert, man. It comes up all the time. And I think what we have to understand is charts will occasionally slip through. Somebody's been admitted and a chart gets processed and we haven't dictated it at that moment in time. You know, when that comes back to the box, this is what I do. First of all. The nurse's notes usually save my butt in this case if they've taken really good notes themselves. But what I put on that chart every time is patient seen on such and such a date. This is a late entry dictation, and I put that right on the chart because the last thing I want to do is be involved in fraud. I do not want to even put out the hint or the idea that I'm doing it contemporaneously with the visit. But this guy says, I can't remember. Well, I got nothing to say. Then what you ought to say is, this is my recollection of the case. By looking at the notes that are here and my discharge instructions, this is what I can remember. And you know what? If that's all you can remember, don't make it up. I agree. I've had some charts without any dictation, just handwritten notes. And a chart gets through the system. The patient's been admitted for three, four months, goes to long-term care. And then the medical record says, Jim, you haven't written a note on the admission. And I look at the chart, scratch my head, and I have no qualms putting the date I'm writing it down. I have no recollection of this case. Nursing notes say patient presented with this, but I cannot remember events and signing mine. I have no independent recollection. This is what the notes say at this point in time. I have no reason to disagree with that. But there's one nice thing about honesty. All you can say is, I forgot. And what are they going to say? I mean, when you honestly see 20,000 patients over the next five years, if you think you can actually bring up their names, all the things they've got. I watched a very interesting examination of a physician once where he's talking about a case that he saw. and The plaintiff's counsel had actually gotten the names of other patients he'd seen that day. So he said to the doctor, doctor, you remember Mrs. So-and-so? Oh, completely. He said, give me the name of any other patient you saw that day. Just one. That's all I want. In fact, just give me some of the other diagnoses you saw that day if you can't think of any other names. Understand memory is a complex process. And if you think you can bring all that stuff back up, I just think you're wrong. And I think we see that every day when the nurses do their... I remember Mrs. Jones, the little old lady who's lying on her back with her wrinkles and her white hair, who looks like every other little old lady with white hair and wrinkles. Exactly. And they say, she's been here five times in the last two months, and you flip through the old record, and she wasn't here for three years. Right. Exactly. And I think that if you're trying to make something what you believe is your memory, all you're doing is making a mistake. So, Tony, get those charts. Try and stop them from getting through the system before you dictate them. If they get through, date it. Time it, tell what the problem is, and what you honestly can remember. Because if it comes to you giving a deposition, they will, they will unseam you from knave to chops 
if they catch that you sort of invented or made things up. Uh, guys, we have a letter from Laura Grisbach. Laura is the Director of Risk Management Quality at Beta Health Pro. Yes, we know her. The company that happens to insure my group in <laughs> Another uh, bad Angeles. decision on <laughs> their <laughs> part. God, if they only knew. But in any case, we were talking a tape or two ago about how do you convey in some kind of record that the department at the time that an incident occurred was just out of control. There were 15 ambulances arrived from the hemophiliac bus accident kind of thing. This was going on, that was going on, and she made a couple of suggestions. One, she talked about the logbook. They can go to the logbook, which we all keep, and see five ambulances came in with this period of time. They can see the diagnosis of the patients who were admitted. You had one cardiac arrest, you had one septic shock, etc., etc. So that logbook, which is clearly subpoenable, can help paint the story of what the heck was going on. Because we talked about, do you really want to put that in the charts that a patient that, I really can't do a good job on this patient because I just got five ambulances and there's nobody answering the call list for the surgeons, etc., etc. You don't et say that you can't do a good no, job. No, obviously. I, I, but what no. you say is, if there is a delay because of X, Y, or Z. I had a situation where I had seven patients in a row to go to the CAT scan. You know what? You can only do so much. And I want something there that I can remember on that chart, what was happening that night. Because, you know, you and I have sort of an internal clock mechanism in us. When we see that things are taking way too long or there's a backup or a problem, you know what? Let's be honest about a couple of these things. I think that we can defend honesty. What you can't defend is, I don't know, I have no idea. Yeah, isn't it true, doctor, that most of your patients get to the CT scanner in 40 minutes, 90% of them? Yeah. Well, how come Mrs. Smith didn't get there? Well, that may not be the way things were that night. So Laura says about the logbook, that may be a come to your rescue. Right. But it also may nail you, too, because why didn't you call the backup doctor in? Doctor, you were seeming clearly overwhelmed. Are you trying to protect the other doctor from having to come in on Thanksgiving evening? Number two is she suggests that many EDs have shift reports in which the ED charger maintains a log and makes notes of significant events occurring throughout the shift, such as periods when all the resources were overwhelmed, instances when a nurse was removed from the department for a significant period of time to monitor a critical patient in the X-ray department, our patients requiring two-to-one care, et cetera, et cetera, two nurses to one patient kind of thing. And she says these forms are not 1157 protected. So it's another way if you have such a thing, although obviously we don't do that. Some people do. It may help you, but I can also see where it may hurt you. Well, you got five registry nurses, two of them called in sick, and you're working short-staffed. You can't get... I mean, I think that I take a look in Canada. We have the Canadian Triage and Acuity Scale, and it says that 85% of our level two patients are supposed to be seen by the physician within 15 minutes of arrival. (laughs) That must be the national joke, isn't it? Well, it puts a standard up that if you don't see them in that time, and there's consequences. For example, thrombolysis for an acute MI is supposed to happen within 30 minutes. Well, if you're not seeing your patients before 15 minutes, you can't thrombolyze them by 30. Right. So there can be consequences as a result of you failing to meet those conditions. For you to try and write in the chart, well, it was busy, doesn't seem to justify legally why you weren't taking care of that patient well. It's more of a system issue. It's not your issue, but for you to write something in the chart, I don't see how you could ever write something in the chart that would justify why you're not taking good care of a particular patient. Well, it depends on how we define good care because the standard of care is not what is done. It's what is reasonably able to be done at that moment in time. Which is why I use the word good, not standard. Okay, because I think that all of us change our practice 
based on the way the department is backed up. If it's slow, we can carry on conversation, joke with the patients, you know, in and out, have a good time. There's no question that you will modify the examination you're doing and modify how you're getting tests going, things like that. When you call attendings, may be modified by how the department is running. Clearly, one night, a few months ago, I called one of the general surgeons and said, you know, I've got this 12-inch laceration on an arm, stuff like that. She said, well, I never come in to sew that up. I said, every other bed is full, and I'm doing a spinal tap of this, of that, of that. Can I get you to come in and do it? She said, yeah. She came in and she did it for me. You know what? Do I usually do those? Yep. I can't know at every moment of the day or night what's coming in. Let me put you in the spot. Yeah. Where would you stand on this idea of having a formal shift report as documented in some kind of logbook or something like that? Where do you stand? I would not be against that as long as people were taught correctly how to chart in that. But in most cases, I think it would actually help us. But you know what we did, something along those lines was that Peter Vicello came up with this proposal to get people out of the emergency department. Well, when we were in St. John, New Brunswick, we developed a calculation of what percentage we were over of full occupancy, and that was done every two hours. So you could have days where you're at 180%, 220%, 300% occupancy, and that's done every two hours, and those are kept as a log. That explains exactly what's going on in your emergency department very clearly because it leads ICU patients, people in the waiting room, admitted patients, and that's a one-pager that you could use very easily to describe exactly your situation. Another approach. I mean, if we step back from looking at this up close, the micro approach, and look at the macro approach, in both Canada and the United States, we've got a crisis coming. And the longer we let it go without addressing the crisis, the bigger the crash is going to be. Uh, how about another one from Ellsberg Clark, our mutual friend, USC. You remember Ellsberg USC from USC? and amateur photographer. No, he's not our amateur. I mean, he is now commercially doing pictures. Is he? Yes, he is. Yeah, Ellsberg is a friend of all of us. Ellsberg, I think, honestly, this is a slam dunk. He says, we're having a big debate at our hospital with the nursing staff concerning patients that sign out AMA. Some patients, i.e. fast-track patients, are given the AMA form by the nurses because they're waiting too long and they want to leave. The form is not being signed by the emergency physician. It occurs mostly in the fast-track, not so much in the main side where the more acute patients are. Any references or articles would be appreciated to allow this to happen. Ellsberg, come on, buddy. You know the answer to this. These nurses cannot be signing out patients without the doctor's involvement or just a matter of time until you get in trouble. Absolutely right. Against medical advice is a disaster waiting to happen. Now, if it's not just left without being seen, that's a little different. But if they've actually been given an examination they're starting to get their care, they dislike the care, they're doing this, that, another thing. It's inappropriate not to have the doctor involved. These things are rare enough that if it happens on my shift, I want to know what's going on and I want the opportunity to make it right. Because I can pretty much walk in and make the patient happy at that moment in time. What I dislike, by the way, too, is the attitude of some people. There are nurses who basically say, when they say, well, I'll leave, they say, well, make my day, sucker. If you don't want to stay, you don't have to. You can sign this. But That's have, what I don't want. We have to remember, Greg, as we all know, that just because a patient refuses a treatment doesn't mean that that's a binary answer. Well, then leave yeah, if you actually, don't get it. Well, and, that's and we right. Have, we have beaten this topic into the ground. Yeah, we have. I think we should focus on this narrow part here. Can nurses do this unilaterally? The answer is absolutely, positively, no. No. No? They've been in the department. They've been examined. The doc, at least give him the courtesy 
of letting him try and rescue this situation. Here's one. I just had a discussion with the head of a group in the Pacific Northwest. They sound honestly like an exemplary group. They have all kinds of bonuses for good citizenship. And one of the things that they want to include in this process is they have a process at their hospital where any kind of thing that goes wrong in any kind of way, whether it results in any kind of harm or not, is reported into this central repository, whether a drug dose is delayed, whether a doctor wrote on the wrong chart. You write on the wrong chart, that's a mistake. Even though you fix it, that's a mistake. So it can be very, very minor kinds of things, as well as some things with consequence. This group wants to know, can we take that information from the hospital and bring it into our group to use it as part of our assessment of these doctors in terms of bonuses, this, that, and the other thing. And I specifically indicated that we would ask you about that, although my impression of this was I would leave that stuff at the hospital. That is private information. It is the hospital's information. It is not discoverable in the hospital's environment. But as soon as you pull that out into your corporate, private corporation to talk about physician behavior, I think you make it all discoverable, and I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. Now, I hope you agree with me, Greg, because that's what I told him. <laughs> well, this varies state by state. State of Nevada, nothing's protected. State of Michigan, a fair number of things are protected. But the point you make is well done. Unless this is a part of the organized uh, quality assurance program run through the hospital, you run the risk that that would either be discoverable or admissible at the time of trial. And if the hospital is running this, if they're doing it through an organized structure and an organized committee system, I think that's fine. If there's somebody who's casually going in and looking at these things, I think the plaintiff would probably bring some sort of action to say, you know what, we ought to be able to casually look at these things too. You don't have a program here. You don't have a way of implementing this. What is this? you doing this as a hobby doctor? Is this casual? The other thing is, so is this doctor looking at other names of other patients and all that sort of thing? There's potential HIPAA problems here as well. It needs to be done in a formalized structure, and they should probably have hospital counsel just check this out and make sure it's okay. I don't think they should do it, period. Stay away. There are a lot of well, other things. they shouldn't things. take it out of the hospital. But if it's going to be done and you're going to review what the hospital have said, it ought to be in a quality assurance structure, which is protected by law in the state of Washington. Okay, Greg, we got a couple minutes left at most. What about the wine of the month? Oh, wine of the month. Beep, beep, beep. Carrying on a theme, which we have been talking about, the fact that the dollar has fallen against the euro to the point of unbelievability, we are going back again to a California wine. One of my favorite California vineyards is Duckhorn. I think they produce fantastic wine. Unfortunately, at the upper end of the scale, Duckhorn is expensive. They're 90-plus in the Parker ratings, are near $100 a bottle. That's a lot of money. Here's the golden nugget here. Duckhorn Vineyards, 2006, Sauvignon Blanc, 25 bucks. $25 for what is rated by Parker and his people 90 or above. You know what? 25 bucks. that's not bad for a great wine from a great vineyard. Duckhorn, buy it. You'll like it. Greg, thanks very much. Jim, I want to thank you for your participation. I thought your comments were right on and very, very helpful. We'll talk with you next month. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.